What's going on, Dr. Jones? And nothing going on but the dean. It's good to meet you in person. Alhamdulillah, same here. It's good to come up to, to New Haven, Connecticut. This is the furthest north I've ever been. Wow. So uh, I haven't seen anything further, further than New York, so this is definitely a new experience. Welcome. I appreciate it. How are things going? Hopefully I didn't catch you at a wrong time. I know you have a hectic schedule, and uh, you probably work weekends too. As the CEO of, of Tiza. Don't don't tell my wife. Okay. <laughs> so I, I hope this isn't interrupting any, any work schedule no, no, over no, the weekend. No, 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 this is good. This is good to the extent that we're helping people understand Islam in this place in this time. This is an important thing. I hear you. Okay, awesome. Um, if it's okay with you, uh, I just wanted to uh, come up and do a quick, you know, uh, preliminary discussion with you to, to delve into your life. Because... Obviously, you, you, you have a, a very interesting life story to tell. And you drop small gems here and there in the middle of class, and you just give us a, a quick sneak peek, but yeah. you, you don't have time to delve further. Right. So I was hoping maybe in a, in, a, in a podcast we could have that opportunity to, to dig deeper. So okay. I'm going to give the floor to you, if you don't mind, to, to just start wherever you want. But uh, if you can, you don't have to get into everything, but if you can, give us just a quick chronological uh, story of your life, if that works. Alhamdulillah, Alhamdulillah, I was born three quarters of a century ago in Baltimore, Maryland, which is a long time, so a lot, a lot of things have been going on. The first thought that leaps into my head about that is the notion of Dino Fitra, that the being a Muslim feels natural to me. It feels like the way I ought to be even though I fight against it in various ways. And the reality is that, uh, as I understand Islam, is that this is the natural way of life for the human being. And so uh, I didn't know this consciously. Uh, we know that uh, unconsciously and in our very being, we're, we're Muslim, but I didn't know this consciously growing up. And then I was basically searching for a way to make sense of the kinds of things that I, I went through. And so if you looked at my family, it was an inner city, African-American, we call ourselves colored family, mm. that has some stresses on it. And it was so stressed that uh, my siblings and I got distributed to various members of the family wow. uh, in order to be raised. And so I was raised by a second cousin, not in Baltimore where I was born in 1946, but I was raised by a second cousin in Roanoke, Virginia which is called the Star City of the South mm. up until this day. From six years of age until 18 years of age, I lived in Roanoke, Virginia, in the throes of the Jim Crow era, which meant that basically I went to, quote, colored schools. Uh, <clears throat> I uh, uh, had secondhand books in those schools. Uh, when I went downtown, uh, I drank colored water. There was actually uh, water fountains that had colored on one side and white on the other. Wow. And if I wanted to eat in a restaurant, I used to, I needed to go into a, a, a back alley uh, where they might serve you something that usually wasn't the best food mm -hmm. to be had. Uh, I want to say none of this was I consciously bitter about. This was the state of affairs that I was born into, that I was used to. And so therefore, you know, the colored people in, lived in one part of town we had our own uh, uh, segregated existence, and the white people lived in another part of town. 
but we knew that the white people controlled everything. We had graduations at our school. The white superintendent would come and sit and preside over it. But pretty much we lived in a colored silo in Roanoke, Virginia from the age of six to the age of 18 years old. I got you. So just a question, if you mm -hmm. don't mind, if we could just dive into that for a second. What would happen if you didn't follow the rules, like if you went to the white fountain instead of the colored one, or or if you walked into the white restaurant? Well, I was around during the Civil Rights Movement at that time, and what happened is that there was a violent blowback against black people who would dare stand up. I I was not one of those people. I was not, as uh, Imam Jamil Alameen, uh, says that we we're all born revolutionaries. I was not born a revolutionary. Mm-hmm. I was born into a segregated uh, caste system that dictated where I was, and that I pretty much stayed there from the uh, age of six until 18 years old. And so, therefore, uh, I didn't know much about the blowback, except I remember very, very vividly the murder of Emmett Till mm. uh, in 1956, I believe, and at that time, I was about 10 years old. And uh, his murder um, uh, really impacted me a great deal simply because we had something called Jet Magazine. It no longer publishes, uh, as many other magazines don't, that was the uh, Facebook for African-American communities at that particular time. In other mm-hmm. words, this is the way we communicated, and this is the way major themes and ideas were communicated in our community. This is where we celebrated uh, the achievements of our community it was in the Jet Magazine. And so when he was brutally murdered, <laughs> the picture of him in a casket, in an open casket, is still emblazoned in my mind mm. simply because he was so disfigured. And his mother wanted an open casket. So as she said, I want everybody in the world to see what they did to my baby. Uh, lynchings are a form of terrorism. They are a form of intimidation. And they're, yes, it kills the person who's lynched, but it also terrorizes the people who are left alive. And seeing that picture terrorized, maybe even traumatized, I just don't use that word that much in relationship to me, but maybe even traumatized me, and to a large extent, shaped my understanding of race in this country even up until today, simply because it was really a shock to see somebody uh, just a little older than I was to be uh, disfigured like that simply because he spoke, quote, out of the way to a white woman. Wow. So is that kind of the reaction that, that that would happen if you walked into the wrong restaurant or if you drank from the wrong water fountain, it would escalate to a lynching possibly? Possibly. There's always the threat of violence. It's always there. I, I think you can understand the Black Lives Matter movement in that sense today be- mm-hmm. because there there's a straight line between uh, what happened during Jim Crow and what happened uh, post-reconstruction uh, with the black codes uh, which turned into the Jim Crow laws, uh, which turned into uh, lynching, which turned into uh, intimidation, voter intimidation, which still goes on today, and the Black Lives Matter movement. Mm-hmm. One can understand uh, the suspicion that uh, African Americans or black people, if you will, have toward police and all 
authority structures in this country because in various ways the major authority structures in this country have been part and parcel of brutalizing black people in this country. You name it. The healthcare system, the so-called healthcare system has been part of it. The uh, public housing system has been part of it. The banking system has been part of it. The, all of the major institutions, the law enforcement system has been part of it. All of these systems have been part of the brutalizing and the suppression of African Americans in this country. And the big question, I would argue, for us as a people is when will we ever be accepted as human beings in this country? Because to a large extent, in each of these instances, whether we are facing a court or we're dealing with uh, public housing, we're objectified and not dealt with as full human beings. We are marginalized and dealt with as somehow subhuman to be given less than. I got you. So and, and, and around this time, there was probably two camps, uh, to my knowledge, right? There were the, the group that followed after the, the, the Jim Crow era, the group that followed Malcolm X's uh, philosophy, which was let's stand up and defend ourselves by any means necessary. And then there was the more peaceful movement with MLK. Which one were you more receptive to at the time? Well, actually, um, I didn't know a lot about uh, Al-Hajj Malik as Shabazz while he was alive. And I did not care for uh, the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King. I never really understood the term the other cheek philosophy in the sense that I felt that it was self-defeating mm -hmm. uh, because I think that if people, if you turn your cheek to a bully, the likelihood, and I was bullied when I was in, in school, the likelihood of that person bullying you again is very, very high. So if if I had to say which of the two camps I saw myself, and it, and it, again, it depends on what part of my life you're talking about. When I was a young boy, I, I, was, I wasn't aware of these uh, various strains of black nationalism and civil rights. I, I just wasn't. Yeah. I knew that Martin Luther King uh, existed. I knew that he was a black Baptist minister, and I went to a black Baptist church. I saw his I Have a Dream speech on our black and white TV. That's what we had at that particular time. Mm -hmm. But I never saw myself as belonging to his camp or somebody else's camp. As I got older and more mature and uh, went away to college, I started reading more. And I forgot to mention that one major factor in the person that I am today was the fact that the household I grew up in and parts of my family encouraged me to read. And so... I was a bibliophile from mm. an early, early age. And so from reading the different uh, things that I read, I read up from slavery, Booker T. Washington. I read uh, all kinds of uh, race uh, books, books about African-Americans. The one uh, that attracted me most was a book by Whitney Young called To Be Equal. Mm -hmm. It seemed to me that Whitney Young had a balanced approach to this whole problem of race in the society, and that he he was a leader of the Urban League, which uh, is sort of a middle-of-the-road, even today, a middle-of-the-road civil rights organization. It was the one, if, if the first camp I was uh, attracted to was the To Be Equal camp, wherein I remember Whitney Young argued in uh, To Be Equal that uh, the, he, he made an argument for affirmative action 
with, with something like this, how can you tell two men who are running the same race that they are in fact equal when one is running the race with a head start, with track shoes, whereas the other one has been left behind, has no shoes, and you tell them that they're equal. You need to have some kind of program right. to bring people up. And so I was in that camp uh, initially you. before I was really, really aware of the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King or really, really aware of El Hajj Malika Shabazz, also known as Malcolm X. Okay. So so you're growing up in, in, in basically the, the Jim Crow South. Life is hard. Yeah. Things are difficult. Where does Yale come into play? Well, I didn't, when I was a kid, there's a, there's a company might still exist called Yale Locks. I, I didn't know anything about Yale University uh -huh. uh, when I was a kid, and I never thought about going to Yale University when I was a kid, or I never thought about going to college. I had no immediate role models except my cousin, a uh, female cousin who raised me, who went to the conservatory, music conservatory in Virginia. But the notion of going to college and get a four-year degree and going and getting a master's, going and get a graduate degree, was nothing that was even talked about when okay. I was young, whereas in other households it might have been talked about. And so it, it uh, going to Yale wasn't even a thought. Uh, how I ended up in college is interesting because I had for a long time uh, thought about uh, what I was going to do when I was 18 years old. I mean, uh, when you turn 18 back then, it's a little bit different from now as I even see it across cultures. I mean, when you turn 18, you better have some kind of plan right. because uh, I never thought anybody would take care of me. So I was thinking that I was going to get a job as a janitor, like the one that my father or my cousin, the male cousin who raised me had, or my uncle have had that I... He, I worked with him during the summertime, or I was going to go to the Marine Corps, a few good men. That was particularly attractive to somebody who'd been who'd grown up basically poor, and I didn't think of myself as poor, but I didn't feel like I could get the things that I needed. And uh, the Marine Corps was attractive simply because uh, you could go there for 20 years and you retire with a full pension. That's what I was told. Mm -hmm. And I said, hmm, I'm 18 now. I go to Marine Corps. I can retire at 38. That sounds pretty young. Right. And I seriously considered it. There was only one small problem with that. There was something called the Vietnam War was going on at the time. And I got the sense that uh, African Americans were being killed in uh, disproportionate amounts being sent to the front line in disproportionate numbers after being segregated and not being sent to the front lines at all. But during the Vietnam War, my sense is that we were dying at greater rates. I don't know if it were true or not, but that's the sense in the street that we had. Mm -hmm. And I said, mm, Marine Corps, not. So yeah. that left college. Uh, I, I don't know how I heard about Hampton Institute, now Hampton University. But I went there knowing that I needed to do something other than being a janitor or going into the Marine Corps. And when I was standing in lines, they used to stand in line to register. Now we go to our smartphone or our laptop. But mm -hmm. we we used to stand in line for half a day or longer to wow. register for classes. And then you get to the end of the line, and the class is closed. And then what do you do? 
So, but in line, somebody asked me, what was I majoring in? I said, major? What's a major, right? That's how much I thought about yeah. college. And I figured that my cousin had been a school teacher. I figured they always need school teachers. And so, okay, teacher education. Well, no, no, that's not enough because you have to have a subject. Mm -hmm. uh, either you're going to do elementary education or something. So I majored in teacher education history. Um, how did Yale come into the picture? Uh, I actually read the autobiography of Malcolm X uh, between my junior and senior years. So that was the summer of 1967. Mm -hmm. And got the black nationalist bug. And But it was more of let's change the world bug. And I thought that if I go to Yale University, get a, a law degree, I could then go to Congress and change the world. But uh, life didn't quite work out that way. I hear you. Um, so you go from Hampton to Yale. Mm -hmm. where, 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 can you explain the transition from Hampton to Yale? Because I think I missed that part. Well, I, w I went to Hampton for four years, mashallah. I was mashallah. a pretty good student. Uh, I I graduated magna uh, summa cum laude. Uh, and um, I was thinking about where to go next year. Of course, this college thing is over. It was a pretty good thing. I yeah. wanted to last, but you gotta, you have to leave. Yeah. So uh, I thought about social change. And the people, at that point, I thought politics was the way. And so I wanted to become a lawyer. Okay, so I need to... Uh, look for a law school. And I applied to two law schools. I applied to uh, Yale and Harvard Law School. That's Marshall. it. Marshall. And, and I got accepted to both. Marshall. Wow, Marshall. I was a little arrogant kid. <laughs> uh, and um, I actually, Harvard offered me more money, but I felt that I was not uh, mature enough to go to a graduate school in a big city like Boston. I hear you. So I chose New Haven. I actually chose the city. I didn't, cho I didn't cho choose uh, Harvard over Yale. I chose New Haven over Boston. I felt that there were too many distractions in Boston. I went and looked and I said, mm, maybe I should be in New Haven. And the rest, as they say, is history. I've been living in New Haven ever since for over a half century. Mashallah. Are you Muslim at this stage? No. When do you ever come across a Muslim or have some sort of your first, like what was your first initial experience with Islam? My initial experience with Islam is that when I was a young boy, I was in choirs, both in uh, elementary school, yeah. middle school, and high school, and that was my way of seeing the world. I saw, uh, I was on a choir trip to Washington, D.C., I don't know which of those schools it was, but I saw these women dressed in white with their heads covered, mm -hmm. all uh, black women and somebody told me this was the nation of Islam mm -hmm. I didn't think anything of it at the time but that was my first uh, encounter uh, with the nation of Islam uh, and quite frankly I didn't think anything of it at the time it was only after I read the autobiography of Malcolm X between my junior and senior year in college that I began to delve deeply through books of course reading yeah. all kinds of books about Islam so you read books about Islam. Mm -hmm. uh, what happens next? I It takes me a while to make decisions. Uh, so it was from uh, 
1967 to 1979, uh, looking around, because for, first of all, I had a strong affinity for the African-American community, right? Mm -hmm. And so I, I felt like, to a certain extent, uh, a lot of people see uh, their religious identity as uh, co-constituent or, or wrapped up in their, their racial identity. And so to be the member of the black church for many of us meant was what it meant to be black, mm -hmm. to sing black music, uh, to sing spirituals, to be in the very emotional black church service was a very much a part of my being, what I grew up with. I found it very, very hard to leave that. That was number one. Number two, when I took a look at the Nation of Islam, and at that time, the only uh, people who called themselves Muslims who, who were doing dawah was the Nation of Islam. There were right. Muslims here in this country, as you know, right. from taking the class with us at, uh, at TISA, Islam in America. Muslims have been in this country since before there was a United States of America. Right. But when it comes to calling people to Islam, uh, internal to the United States of America, those people uh, who were most active were African Americans at this time, the Nation of Islam, who had uh, uh, Muhammad Speaks newspapers, the ubiquitous, always ready bean pie, the uh, whiting H and G fish, all of this was around us in the black community, and uh, we, uh, uh, many of us, conflated that with blackness. But by the same token, I never bought into the Yaqub myth of Yaqub, which is what uh, Malcolm X talks about in his autobiography of Malcolm X, which. Right was uh, still being taught by the Nation of Islam today, the notion that that the white man came from, uh, was no, was created by this scientist by uh, grafting uh, weaker and weaker strains of black people into the white race. This is um, was something I never accepted. Uh, I didn't uh, think what white people thought of so-called colored or black people was the right thing. And I'd never accepted this notion that somehow the white race was some other uh, mutant race that was developed. So I never joined uh, the Nation of Islam. I went to their meetings. I ate the bean pie. Mm -hmm. I ate the fish sandwiches. I uh, read the newspaper, but I never joined. I did not join uh, their community until uh, after the death of uh, Elijah Muhammad and the ascension of his son, Warf Dean Muhammad. And I took Shahada in 1979 within sure. that community. So that's uh, how I became Muslim. So just a question about the, the, the black church, because you said it's people saw it as representative of the black identity. Right. What was, and obviously for the, the average uh, black American at the time, they were very, their general disposition towards the nation of Islam was probably pr pretty positive because they were accepting Islam in droves. What about the clergy though? Did they see them as a threat? Did they like them? Well, before Malcolm X, uh, Nation of Islam was more of a fringe group, yeah. along with Noble Drew Ali's uh, Moorish Science Temple. Uh, they, they had a following, but not that large. But when uh, Minister Malcolm came along, who I believe founded not only was a powerful order, uh, but founded uh, the Muhammad Speaks newspaper, I believe, if I'm correct, Mm -hmm. uh, they began to pull in more and more middle class and, quote, upper class black people. This was a 
a, a major shift in the, the nation of Islam. And so before that, large numbers of African Americans were not entering it. But once you come into the 60s, 50s, and 60s with Malcolm X, with James Brown singing Say It Loud, I'm Black and I'm Proud, the mm -hmm. era of black pride, which was pushed by the nation of Islam, you had more and more people joining it. Uh, and so, um, uh, so um, the nation of Islam was not a big choice for people before then. I, I forgot your original question. I'm sorry. No, I was just wondering about the clergy, uh, whether or not they had a positive or negative view towards the Muslims. Oh, well, since they were stealing people from their church, right, um, right. they weren't very positive. I mean, but what people need to know, need to understand is that many black clergy were not positive about the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King. Oh, for, wow. For two reasons. One is that he was making trouble. Uh, we, uh, we just had a congressman who died, uh, talked about making good trouble. He, he, right. he was a troublemaker. And oftentimes the clergy, not always, were the people who kept the peace between the white and black community by uh, living off the status quo. Wasn't always true but it was often true. And so here comes this troublemaker in town, right, talking about uh, uh, desegregation, talking about economic justice. People don't talk about uh, the, the, how much uh, Martin Luther King talked about poverty and the evils of poverty uh, in society, but he talked about it a lot. And so they didn't like him, number one, for that reason. Number two, I mean, you, you have uh, amongst people in religious leadership, you have jealousies of people who are doing work that seem to be getting a lot of attention. And so, uh, to a large extent, if you if you study the life of Martin Luther King, many times the black church uh, uh, pastors uh, did not want him to come to town; would dissuade him. Of course, many of his lieutenants were from the black church. You know, right. uh, uh, Jesse Jackson and the like. But the reality is that there were many uh, black ministers who saw him as a threat and a troublemaker. So the kind of the same view then towards members of the Nation of Islam towards Malcolm X. When, when are you talking about? Uh, well, maybe the part where he gets more popular than... Right, absolutely. Yeah, yeah you're, you're talking about that kind of jealousy Yeah, uh, where people are saying that things about him like that didn't appear, at least from my study, him to be true. Mm -hmm. He was trying to uh, create a following of Malcolm X, that he always, always, the Honorable Elijah Muhammad teaches us. The Honorable Elijah Muhammad teaches us. He, if you, if you catch his speeches before he left the Nation of Islam, this is what he said all the right. time. And he saw uh, the Honorable Elijah Muhammad as a father that he did not have growing up because mm -hmm. his father was murdered right. uh, when he was a little boy. And so, but there were people within, as you you noted, within the nation of Islam that were jealous of him, just like uh, black ministers were jealous of the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King. But this is uh, this is the downside of somebody who tries uh, in both these instances, even though uh, their theology wasn't one that we totally agree with. Both these instances were trying to call people to God as mm -hmm. they understood it. Uh, oftentimes they would have uh, serious, serious enemies within their ranks. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. Was there any uh, was there any uh, other racial group or ethnic group or religious group that was involved besides 
you know, uh, in, in this conflict between black and white, was there any other racial group that was in the mi- in, in the midst of this situation? I'm not sure. So where I think you mentioned in class one time that there were Arabs that ran an Arab supermarket in the middle of the Jim Crow South. Yeah, uh, well, so the question of where were the other Muslims during this time? Yeah. Well, it, when uh, first of all, uh, for the vast majority of African Americans, at, at first uh, they were coming uh, as in, uh, they were coming as enslaved people, and so they didn't have a choice, and so but to identify as enslaved black people. Um, now, so with Arabs and uh, Turks and other people, uh, they often had a choice as to whether to identify as Muslim or as uh, ethnicity. And usually, uh, given the tortured history between Islam uh, and the United States and the Muslim countries, they identified with their ethnic group. and so. For a large, to a large extent, uh, the author that we use in class says you can't count them because most of the time you would only know their ethnicity. This is a, a very, very difficult thing to talk about. I hear you. So just to transition then, because I know you have to run, um, h- how do you find the situation of the black Muslim community today? Like after the, obviously, the, the switch up from NOI to mainstream Sunni Islam, have, has that affected you know, because obviously the the nation of Islam it was very organized, and right. they, they they would conduct these very very effective rallies. And Malcolm X, even non-Muslim you know uh, uh, black folks would join in on these mm-hmm. rallies because of you know they were they were very interested in the power and and the the organization that he had going. So did 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 all that go away when when most of the nation of Islam left with Wadi the Dean? Uh, no and yes, uh, no in the sense that uh, uh, Louis Farrakhan after staying with Warth bin Muhammad for a few years after the death of Elijah Muhammad, mm-hmm. restarted the Nation of Islam, and he still leads it today, and still has on the website of the Nation of Islam that God came in the person of a man, something that no, you don't need a religious scholar of course. To, to say that this is not the general belief of Islam. Uh, he still has this. Um, but yes, in the sense that a lot of people fell away from the regimentation and the organization of the Nation of Islam. So uh, here's, here's my take on this. I've said this in, in different places, that the, what's known as the African-American Muslim community is perfectly situated to provide strong leadership for the indigenization of Islam in this country. Mm-hmm. Unfortunately, I think uh, there are two forces that militate against this possibility. And so notice I said to provide strong leadership, not to be the only leader. I mean, people sort of talk like, well, it's either us or them. No, if we look at the founding community of our beloved it was what we would call a multicultural community where he welcomed everybody who believed in la ilaha illallah, Muhammad Rasulullah. I mean, there's just no question about it. Male, female, slave, free, uh, people who were were high-born, low-born, in-between-born. I mean, this was a multicultural community from the beginning, and we've seemed to have lost our way on that. That's number one. Mm-hmm. Number two, the the reality is that uh, that there are many African Americans who are in the United States today who have seen the history 
of Jim Crow and, Jim, and racism, uh, who, who saw this as a forerunner to the Islamophobia, the post 9-11 Islamophobia, the post-Rushdie affair Islamophobia, the post-Iranian crisis, hostage crisis. I mean, there have been different waves of Islamophobia in this country. I think African Americans understand this kind of phobia best simply because we've had it deployed against us for so long, mm -hmm. so very, very long. And I think that what's being missed, uh, the so-called immigrant, and I say the so-called immigrant community, because a lot of people we call immigrants aren't immigrants at all. They're second, third, fourth generation mm -hmm. people. But the so-called immigrant community often misses the boat when, uh, in a sense, misses the boat, right? When, when <laughs> they forget that there, there's, even though most of us were not raised Muslim and we may not have as deep roots in our families of Islam, but one thing we do know is the, the notion of oppression in the United States and how you deal with it in a forceful, straightforward manner. We have a very, from Harriet Tubman up to Martin Luther King to, to Malcolm X, uh, we have a, uh, to Muhammad Ali, we have, a, we have a tradition of this, and that we need to bring together the history that the so-called immigrants have of being Muslims for a while with the history of the African-American living in this country under oppression for so many years and think about how it is that we come together to deal with this. That's what I mean when I say the African-American community is perfectly situ situated to provide strong leadership for the indigenization of Islam in this country. I hear you. So well, what's your disposition then towards the, the Black Lives Matter movement? You mentioned it a couple times. They're obviously not comparable to Malcolm X. They're a very decentralized structure. There's no head of the BLM. What do you think about the movement, and, and would it be something that you support, obviously? Well, there, were, there are three answers to that. Yeah. First, I understand the Black Lives Matter movement, given the fact that for, for uh, hundreds of years, the humanity of African Americans has been up for grabs. Mm -hmm. Whether we're uh, human beings or not, that's why when we enter hospitals, when we enter the so-called criminal justice system, when we uh, deal... In the, in the economic system, we often aren't dealt with fairly because people don't see us as full human beings. Right. And so, uh, so, so I understand Black Lives Matter in that particular context. When we start talking Black Lives Matter has nothing to do with all lives matter, I, it, I find that somewhat problematical. You know, I did a TED Talk on this, Black mm -hmm. Lives Matter, because all lives matter, because I bring the two together, just like the Quran says, yeah, O humanity, reverence your guardian Lord who created you from one person and from that and through to the end the creator is me. Because so ultimately we're all one human family. We should not let the racist paradigm that's been imposed on us by colonialists, by people who perpetuate Jim Crow laws be the way we deal with the problem. Mm -hmm. And so, first of all, Black Lives Matter, I totally understand it because people act as if black lives don't matter. But I don't understand it when we disconnect it from all lives matter because the same energy that was being put against black people in the 20s and 30s around lynching black people was put against poor white people in the 20s and 30s in a movement called the eugenics movement. Mm. And this is a movement 
where over 60,000 Americans were sterilized under the color of law. And this movement started being aimed at, quote, lower class white people. Right. And so if we understand this, we understand that the people who are being lynched and the people who are being sterilized have common cause. There's a small, there's a small group of people at the top who will benefit uh, from us fighting each other. Mm -hmm. That is, the people who are being lynched and the people who are being sterilized, we're fighting each other as if the, the issue is about skin color. The issue is about power. The issue is about oppression. The issue is about economic exploitation. And so once we begin to understand this, we say, yes, black lives matter. It's also true that all lives matter. And so therefore, we're with anybody who's for standing up against economic oppression, against black people and all people, against native people. There are all kinds of people who have been oppressed. That doesn't mean that you dilute, because mm -hmm. this is what people say, that you dilute the Black Lives Matter movement. In some sense, it makes it much more powerful. I offer to people the 1963 march on Washington, which was partially organized by the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King, but he was made famous by that march on Washington. And there were hundreds of thousands of black people and white people and labor people and indigenous people in that march. And still people saw it as a fight for black people. People held the same ideas. Black and white people held the same ideas. We shall overcome black and white together. You can hold the same ideas. You can fight for black people without pretending that somehow if you say that other lives matter, it dilutes you. This doesn't make any sense, mm -hmm. and it cuts off natural allies in other communities. So I say Black Lives Matter, yes, absolutely, because we have to fight for our humanity in this country. But I also say that all lives matter, because it's not just black people who are being killed by the health care system today. The health care system today is, A, not a system at all. B, is a system, I'm 75 years old, and I'm dealing with Medicare and Medicaid, it is an insane paper-based capitalistic system. It is insane. It, it is a shameless system in a country that calls itself, and I'll tell anybody, it's a shameless system in a country that calls itself a beacon of light in the world that people over 65 or 70 years old every year are bombarded with these ridiculous ads about their health care, something so important, particularly when your body is breaking down, right? Right. And so this is insane. So the reality is that older people, just because they're older, are dying because they can't navigate a crazy system. And that, yeah, yeah, people of color die more often, absolutely. But that doesn't mean that the white people who are dying who are poor or the Latino people who die are poor, their lives don't matter. We should just talk about black lives matter. And so we should understand that we're in the struggle for justice, uh, as the Nation of Islam used to say, freedom, justice, and equality for everybody. Because that was what our beloved alayhi salat was right. about from the beginning, and that's what we should be about. And it does not keep us from standing up for justice for black people, but it helps us by connecting our struggle with the struggle of other people. It makes us stronger, not weaker. For sure. And, and you obviously, you don't talk about this situation as an outsider. Mm -hmm. um, You've lost your own son to police violence. You mentioned in class one time. Yes. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Um, Malik was named after El Haj Malik as Shabazz. Uh, we uh, had high hopes for him, hoping that he would follow in the footsteps of El Haj 
in the Gesh Shabazz, that is to be a warrior mm. for justice for all people. That's before he died, uh, he famously said in his autobiography, I am for truth no matter who speaks it. I am for justice no matter who's for or against. I'm a human being first and foremost, and as such I'm for whomever or whatever benefits humanity as a whole. That's the kind of person that I wanted Malik to grow up to be, that would stand up for justice for everybody while standing up for justice for his people. Because Malcolm X never, never stopped advocating for black people in particular, but then he shifted to humanity in general. Mm -hmm. And we can walk and chew gum at the same time. We can spearhead actions to deal with racism while dealing with the oppression of other people. We act as if we can, but we can. We can't pretend that looking at black Sahabas of 1,400 years ago is the same as looking at black people who live in city, inner cities today. Mm -hmm. they're, just, they're, they're just simply not the same. And I don't think it helps us to sort of silo ourselves in that particular way. So Malik in April uh, 1997 uh, was driving in East Haven, a place that's never been seen as friendly to black people. Uh, there's a lot of disagreement of how he was targeted, but what's not in dispute is that he stopped, the police stopped him in East Haven, and he pulled off, and it's a chase ensued from somewhat suburban East Haven into inner city New Haven, where I still live, by the way, mm -hmm. in a different part of inner city New Haven, and uh, for a traffic violation, basically, yeah. because that's what the police were chasing him for, and a confrontation ensued in a field near the home where he then lived with his mother. His mother and I were divorced at the time. Mm -hmm. And How old was he at the time? He was 21. Okay. Old. And the police officer approached the car, he said he feared for his life, but that's all police officers have to say right. in order to get off. And uh, he said that Malik uh, started moving the car and he thought threatened him. He took the butt of his gun, there's no dispute about this, banged the side window on uh, of the car, the driver's side that Malik was driving, and shot him seven or eight times wow. at point blank range. And... Um, that's what happened. It, no matter what the police officer was thinking at the time, I know that race had something to do with it. Mm -hmm. I believe that uh, if Malik had not been black, that the officer would have been less likely to kill him. There are plenty. There's plenty of data on this. That's the society we live in. But while I was gr crying and grieving over this, I'm also a prison chaplain. I've been uh, going into the New Haven uh, County Jail, we call it, the correctional institution, mm -hmm. for four decades. Okay. And the hadith that came to mind was something that was something that I've been teaching to uh, the young men at the time, is that uh, patience is at the beginning of calamity. And for my baby to die at the hands of somebody whose who's, uh, who's salary I pay, I'm a taxpayer, you know, whose bullets I pay for, yeah. was very painful. Under those circumstances, having grown up in the Jim Crow South, understanding the racial dynamics as I understood it was a very painful thing. And I was extremely angry. But 
I tried to be patient, and it, it was uh, it was it was extremely hard. <coughs> Excuse me, but the thing I, I didn't want to do was to silo the black community off and say this is only something that happens in the black community. Yeah. The fact that our communities are flooded with guns as we speak is a danger to everybody. It's more of a danger to black people for various reasons, but it was a danger to those six-year-old kids up at Sandy Hook. Right. So <coughs> what, 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 what was the... Um, sorry, I can't, I can't start a word with W. Um, <coughs> what, what was the aftermath of the whole situation like... I'm sure the the whole community reacted to that. They didn't just let it slide. I'm sure people came up and they were upset about it and they protested. Is that what happened? Several things happened. One, <coughs> first that my friends that I knew from prison called me and said, you just say the word, we go, we're going to ride and be saving. <laughs> I said, y'all need to calm down, right? You know. And I thought about retaliation, uh, physical retaliation. Number two, my uh, ex-wife, uh, she led a series of demonstrations that have lasted up until now uh, uh, around the killing of my son. Number three, uh, she filed a lawsuit that went uh, up to the Supreme Court, and the Supreme Court uh, denied it. Basically, when an officer says, you know, I feared for my life uh, under circumstances, and plus we didn't have a videos like we have videos today, mm -hmm. yeah. uh, it, it, was, it, was a hard, it was a hard case. For me, what I did personally, first of all, is that I imposed a 60-day moratorium on me speaking to the press because I was bitterly angry. Mm -hmm. And I don't think you do yourself any good by speaking to the press when you're bitterly angry because that's not what you're all about. That was not what I was all about. That's not what I was teaching my children. And that's not what I taught Malik, to be bitterly angry at somebody because they were white mm -hmm. or black or Latino. That's not what I taught but the, the race angst uh, was up in me, and I knew that I couldn't trust myself to say anything that would be helpful, and I didn't, I didn't want to divide the community. Secondly, I called the mayor of uh, East Haven and the, the head of the police commission of East Haven, and I said to both of them, I said, do you have any young men, and they both happen to be Italian-American, you, do you have any young men in your uh, in your uh, family that are 21 year olds, 21 year old, uh, 21 year olds as Malik was? And they said yes. And I said, uh, uh, listen to me and listen to me carefully. If you cover this up, which cities and police departments are prone to do, right, the streets will be less safe for your 21 year olds because what the message you'll be sending to that officer and other police officers is that it's okay to run up to a car, bang the window, you know, with the butt of your gun. This, right. is, this is something you see in the movies, in westerns yeah. in the movies. This is right, right? You, you don't think, that, he didn't learn this in police academy. You bang the window with the butt of your gun and shoot somebody at point blank range during a traffic stop. I said, if you, if you cover this up, if you fight this, this is what's going to happen. Within a year or so, a white woman in nearby North Brantford, not so far from East Haven, was killed in a similar circumstances. Wow. She was driving away from the police officer. 
and he shot her through the driver's side window and killed her. Wow. Nobody made a fuss about it. Nobody made a fuss about it. Even the white woman? Nobody made you, you need to hear this. There weren't there weren't demonstrations that I know about about it, right? Uh, n- definitely not the kind of demonstrations against what happened Today. in the league, right? Yeah. Right? But the city of North Branford settled with her, and the city of East Haven didn't settle with us. Mm. So you, you see what's happening here. So, but my point is, is that you 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 can't silo these things. I mean, the, the, as I was saying, that the fact that we have so many guns on the street makes the community. I live in the community that's a different inner city uh, community that Malik grew up in on the other side of town. Uh, near uh, near the uh, Yale New Haven Hospital, one of the reasons we are over-policed, and we are, is because there's so many guns in the street. I listen to police officers, and I have friends and family members who are in law enforcement. They talk about the fact that what's changed on the streets is that a 14-year-old is more likely to have a gun than he was 30 years ago. Mm-hmm. If you're a police officer, it changes your whole mindset. Am I saying that it's okay for officers to shoot 14-year-olds? No. Am I saying that racism is not a reality in in many of these police departments, both individually and in the ethos and in the culture? No. But what I am saying is that one factor in this is that we, one factor in this is that we as a country have decided that, you know, we like guns in the hands of almost everybody, mm-hmm. particularly in the state of Texas, right? <laughs> almost everybody. And this is dangerous for everybody, but particularly dangerous for black and, and people of color. And so this is, uh, so the aftermath of this is that I feel more of a firm resolve to work with young people who are incarcerated like Malik was uh, from time to time to, to speak out against uh, the kind of attitude that we have uh, toward uh, people having guns and to try not to silo this issue of Black Lives Matter because one of the reasons Black Lives Matter is because all lives matter. Mm-hmm. And one of the reasons that it's easy to focus on black people and to, and to focus on this this way is to divide and conquer us. And now it's Black Lives Matter versus Blue Lives Matter versus All Lives Matter. The reality is, is that people should rise up together and say enough is enough. Killing babies and 14-year-olds shooting each other in the street is not a good thing. And we can do something about it by passing more common sense uh, gun gun control laws. So it sounds like then, obviously, you're, you're not a big fan of the, uh, the approach that says, you know what, and this is actually something that people are using, you know, even academics are supporting to say that riots do bring about change and sometimes even violent riots it's because it's it's the it's the voice of the masses it's the way that they articulate their concerns i uh live in new haven connecticut i was born in baltimore maryland Mm -hmm. both of these communities have been touched by riots do i think those communities are better off uh, after the riots i said heck no Mm -hmm. that these were destructive activities that for the most part hurt the people who lived in those communities and hurt the reputation of black people as a whole because people say, see there? Right. That's how they act. 
exactly. <laughs> so what do you think about this, uh, the rhetoric around defund the police? Do you think that's a good move then? I think that uh, what we call policing in this country is wrong-headed. Mm-hmm. I mean, I think it's a mistake to send a police to uh, a mental health something that's clearly a mental health issue. Mm-hmm. I mean, uh, uh, common sense people would, would say this. I think defunding police is an unfortunate term, like uh, some un- unfortunate terms that tends to divide people into two camps. Either you want to fund the police or defund the police. No, I want people not to die at the hands of police. I want crime reduced in, in my community. I don't care what you call it, public safety, public support, I mean, I don't care what you call it. I want the money to be spent on reducing the crime and making us safer. The current situation in many of the cities in the United States is that crime is going up and we're less safe. So reform rather than uh, defund. Well, well, yeah, change, reform, sure. I hear you. Um, So the, the path forward then, what do you think should happen here? Uh, should the, the Black Lives Matter movement be, because obviously you're saying it shouldn't, things shouldn't be siloed, then does that mean we want, like like the way Eric Love describes in his book on Islamophobia, that there should be uh, more cross-functional effort between different racial and ethnic groups? Yeah, well, these are tools. I think the question, the first question is, what's your GPS? You know, mm-hmm. the, you know when I was a kid, you need to know how to read a map to get from point A to point B. If you want to get from one city to another, you better know how to read a map or you end up lost. Now all you do is pull out your phone and talk to it. Mm-hmm. Right? And so, because you have a GPS with you. Uh, here's What's my point here? Is that for the Muslim, and so particularly African-American Muslim, but all Muslims, our GPS should be the Quran and the Sunnah of Prophet Muhammad alayhi salatu I mean, this is too obvious. But it's not obvious in the sense of where we frame these issues. We often frame these issues in the rhetoric of the streets, not the rhetoric of the Quran and the prophetic paradigm. See, because if we frame it in the rhetoric of the streets, we're going to be divided and conquered. We're going to say Black Lives Matter, Blue Lives Matter. Mm-hmm. If we frame it in the rhetoric of Surah and Nisa 1, right? Yeah, and you mass and talk of radical, mm-hmm. you, you have a, a totally different approach. Yes, you're angry about the racism against black people. Yes, you're angry about the poverty. But you just don't lose your mind and get caught up in the rhetoric that's been developed by the people who sought to oppress us in the first place. I hear you. I hear you. Okay, Jazakallah then. I know you have uh, very limited time today. So uh, maybe this will be a good first podcast and we'll come back up inshallah to new haven and uh finish up, pick up where, where we left off inshallah you're welcome so zekalakha for your time dr jones i appreciate you coming alhamdulillah zekalakha we'll see you again soon inshallah inshallah